Welcome back, everyone, to another new episode of Grow Your Path to Wellness. We had some tech issues, some unforeseen circumstances last week for Latoya's episode, but um, we have her back with us this week, and we're going to be talking about the topic of young black males. So, this is Latoya Logan. So if you don't mind, LaToya, give us a little bit of an introduction, background, and welcome first. But Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here and talk about something that I really care about. Um, my name is LaToya Logan. I'm a clinical social worker, social worker first, because social workers are important. Um, and my history of, of working with males really across the lifespan is has in my entire career. So I started out working with transitional age males who were court involved and I stayed in the realm or at least court criminal justice adjacent in uh, my career endeavors. And so most of the work that I do is really around um, injustice, uh, bias and behavioral health, trauma specifically, as it relates to multiple cultural expressions. And um, I'm just glad to be here. No. Oh, you know, just just some really awesome, amazing, Thanks. systematic <laughs> oppression, crushing things. <laughs> I'm so excited. What's your current role, oh, uh, Toya? Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. You said what's my current role? Yeah. What what kind of work are you doing right now? Oh, okay. So I started uh, my own nonprofit and consulting agency, Project Lift Services. We serve males across the lifespan, specifically focusing on helping fathers who might have a legal history reintegrate with their families, um, to teaching life skills, but from a social-emotional learning perspective as opposed to just be an adult, um, and then also doing a lot of training for human service professionals. So that includes police officers, uh, social workers, or anyone who really provides services to people. <laughs> I love this. I'm so excited. Okay, sorry, Amanda. No, yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> why, um, or I guess, how did you, was it your first um, experience in the field that really just made you super passionate or why is this such why the topic today obviously it's your life's work now but why <laughs> is this so such a passion for you and and yeah like all those things um so i would love to say that um i knew that i would end up where i am in my career but that's that's not what happened yeah. um i think that you know <clears throat> excuse me my personal experience growing up it really brought me to this point. So I'm fortunate enough to be adopted. And when my parents adopted me, uh, they didn't believe in breaking up sibling sets. So they ended up adopting three sibling sets, uh, five boys, two girls. <laughs> and wow. so, yeah, yeah. So I grew up with um, a mother and a father that was very conscious about the struggles we would be faced with just for just statistical reasons alone, um, being black, being poor, um, having uh, placement in foster care, et cetera. And with my brothers, I noticed they struggled a little more than I did. Um, yes, we know that sexism complicates oppression. We know that uh, gender expression complicates oppression. But when we're talking about the like specific races and you look at the black community, um, black women tend to do better partially because of sexism. People don't think that women are a threat. So the targets 
for the most part, are always with mammals and their um, life determinants seem to be poor. So having worked in the field, starting at Job Corps, going through the court system, doing outpatient reentry work, it just came back to the same thing. Black males are just not, something's missing. There's a gap in service, there's a gap in knowledge, there's a gap in resources. And so that just kind of solidified yeah we talk about it all the time and it's now been I don't know three to four episodes that we're talking about how even though we didn't realize those initial formative experiences would be so formative we kind of just wrote them off as like oh that was an experience like I gave the example of being a, a waitress and getting quickly promoted to like a service trainer and it wasn't because I was an amazing waitress I realize this now it's because I was really great at educating and empowering other people which now has come full circle so it sounds like for you and then again my life experiences also contributed so it's beautiful to hear the consistency of our life's coming kind of full circle with those experiences. Now, can I ask, do you try to figure out how to, what I'm trying to ask being a black female working, do you work with all males or do you focus only on black males with your nonprofit? I work with all males. All males. Okay. We do target. So we have some training and treatment that's specifically developed uh, with men of color in mind. And so we, we focus in that way, but we serve males across the lifespan. Do you notice any specific, this wasn't something that we prompted as a question, but I'm just wondering, do you notice any specific dynamics as far as you being female, you being black female and then serving males? Yes, you know, I think <laughs> um, I've worked primarily my entire career with males in correctional facilities and I mean, in a, in a shelter, in an abandoned building because they were homeless and I'm trying to let's go find you somewhere to go. Um, and I think people often think, oh, you're a woman. What's going to happen? And what I have come to understand and through my experience, and it could just be my approach, it could be a whole bunch of things. And it could just be because um, I find that males are more open to me because I am a woman, because there's a the trust in being vulnerable and not being judged or having to compete. And I think that that's something we don't talk about in behavioral health when we say preferences. Um, asking for an LGBTQ plus affirming therapist isn't because we're like, ah, I want to discriminate. It's because I'm looking for a place where I can be vulnerable. And so for me, I think that the men I work with, that that's why they they do well is they know it's a safe space to be vulnerable. I agree. I've had the same experiences, you know, whether it's just they feel that we're more empathetic or just more emotional focused or open, caring, um, kind of that motherly, sisterly type feeling, you know, in a professional way. Is there anything lacking or is there a specific service that you add to give them positive male role models or influences as well or? So it really depends on what the the issue is. So let's say, for instance, if I have a young male who's coming to me, he's like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. And the source of that anxiety or obsessive or intrusive thought dates back to maybe their father being um, over-disciplinary or, or just authoritative, then my focus wouldn't be connecting them to a male. Um, it would be really helping them to build self-esteem within their masculine identity to determine where that would go. Um, but I think, I think that is sometimes our default. We're like, 
they're men. Let's get them men. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I get it in the grander scheme, you know, role model, blah, blah, blah. But I really think that um, we ha- we should start having better conversations about therapeutic need as opposed to just focusing so much on gender. Um, yeah. Because I think it doesn't matter who the therapist is. If the therapist understands how to meet that client where they are, you'll be fine. Yeah. Just some random, they're just random things coming. No, no, I appreciate that. (laughs) There's so many dynamics that go into the therapeutic, you know, process and us on the other end of it. It's, I can only speak for myself, but I've had experiences where it's like, holy cow, okay. I wasn't the person for them Mm -hmm. and that's okay. And Mm -hmm. what's my role in that? Okay. I'm going to get them connected to somebody. I mean, unfortunately in our field, I feel like it's common for serve for them just to kind of fall off and then we start, we don't see them again and then we don't have that opportunity to connect them because of that that gap of not feeling like they can be vulnerable to express that to us mm-hmm. right and i think you raise another question too um with the gaps in services and trying to maintain that relationship you know we have to do a better job of describing depression and anxiety and just any disorder outside of these very narrow confines of what it's supposed to look like and how a person should experience symptoms associated with those disorders because we know that men and women don't typically experience the same emotion or trauma the same way so if we know that why aren't we doing a better job of saying you know you tell me what it is as opposed to it needs to fit into what this criteria is saying um, has to happen. So, but that's a, that's big work. (laughs) I was going to say a lot of times I end up saying, you know, people will come to me for their anxiety and they almost get confused or I don't know, they hesitate when I say, okay, can you tell me how, you know, you experience anxiety? What is that like for you? And they just expect that they say I'm anxious and I have anxiety and I'm just going to be like, okay, checking boxes. And I know, but I know that's different for anyone, everyone. And then something else that came to mind is the cultural differences as far, and I know that this isn't a topic that we like had for today, but when we're talking about black families and mental health, Um, I've noticed the barriers of like, no matter how much psychoeducation I provide, it's just not accepted when they go back home and they have this struggle of, I know I need this. You're, you're validating. I need this yet. This isn't the truth from my family of origin. So do you see that a lot? And how do you help others balance that? I do. And I actually just did a training for um, clinicians, uh, behavioral health professionals of multiple disciplines. And that's one of the things we tackled is you, how do you acknowledge fears related to service? Because it needs to be acknowledged. It's not like Black families are saying, you know, that therapy thing, I'm just not going to, you know, there's history there. There's Mm -hmm. medical history there. There's system abuse there. Um, And so the mistrust is the same mistrust we're seeing with the COVID-19 vaccine. It's just, you can't expect trust from systems that have historically oppressed and abused. And when you set out, if you're like, no, we really want you to understand why this is important, then you have to not just treat that person, but you have to understand community history. So example to to what you're saying, Um, if I'm in the Cleveland area and East Cleveland is a smaller city in that area that most people know about. 
Why? Because it is like a wasteland. Um, every third house or building is abandoned. There's not even a grocery store in East Cleveland. So when we're talking about you know, you're meeting with a teenager and you're like, but you got to go to school and you got to do these things. And we have not processed community exposure and the impact to my belief in, in, in treatment. You have me walking past dilapidated buildings where I'm seeing crime and I'm seeing this this representation that my life doesn't matter because I live in this. But then you're like, but go home and like be organized and be structured. What's happening there is Yes, the client may not be engaging, but we also have not done our due diligence as clinicians to engage that client by understanding what's happening around them. And I'm sorry if I'm talking too long in my, my response. Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> like I always say, you know, meet both Amanda and I were white females and, you know, our communities, you know, look different and our own privilege and all of that stuff that's, you know, not for the topic today, but. You know, you pick, I pictured like this little kid walking down a sidewalk and that, that the big societal stuff that's around them all day long. And then having an adult that, you know, they may still perceive us as a safe person, but it's like, you're telling me to do this. Right. I don't have stuff in place to even be able to like, to do that. I don't Maslow's hierarchy came immediately to mind. You know, we're trying to ask you to do higher level functioning, but mm -hmm. you have no basic safety or security in any environment you're in, let alone the historical trauma, the racism, the oppression, the policing or lack thereof, right? You know, all of those systems that come into play and we're being unrealistic. And then those kids often get labeled as defiant or, you know, absolutely, it's behavioral, right? right? And it's problematic. And this kid hasn't shown up for school in 32 days. And I don't know. Has anyone gone to check on him? Is he eating? Right. Is he safe at home? Is he taking care of his siblings? Did he have to get a job? Yeah. No, you can never talk too long. And we yeah. are happy to like have you on as many times as possible yeah. because this information needs to get out there. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And this is the work that we need to do. And obviously I'm not going to get on here and talk about things I don't know. So I need, I need you and I need people like you to come educate me and make sure in my community and know and acknowledge our privilege, right? And to say, hey, I can't have this expectation of someone coming into therapy. You just even made me think about it, right? Okay, I can educate you. And then you go back to that environment and I can conceptually understand what you said as far as historical trauma and medical mistrust, but hearing it from you reminds mm -hmm. me, I need to do more work. I need to dig deeper. So That's yes, awkward. you're never gonna talk too much. <laughs> We do this, this podcast and we've had such already, you know, we're always looking for diverse guests because it's our responsibility, you know, mm -hmm. to be doing our own work. So yeah. you, Latoya, do you mind sharing your perspective of young male, young black males and their mistrust of authority? I know we mentioned mistrust earlier, but kind of as far along the lines of their mistrust of authority. Okay. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, when I think of authority, the first thing I think of is let's break a rule. And every single one of us at some point, whether it was a toddler and we were like, don't touch the cookies and you grab the cookies anyway, or don't go outside and you did anyway. Like it is instinctual for humans to want to just, you said no. Ooh, 
Yeah. Okay, let me see. Yes, right? And so that's the positive, healthy uh, boundary pushing and exchange that should happen uh, between a those in authority and, and, and those who are under their supervision. For Black males, it isn't just about being an 18-year-old Black male in 2021, because you don't exist outside of Trayvon Martin. You don't exist outside of Tamir Rice. You don't exist outside of Mega Evers or Fred Hampton or any of these Black individuals who spoke up and were quickly told that they weren't supposed to. Now, that's generational trauma, and I know that that's not what we're talking about today, but it's impossible to separate out current behavior from generational patterns that you learn for safety, protection, and defense. So for Black males in this country, and, I, and I, when I say Black Americans, I'm speaking specifically about Black people who were descendants of slaves because that's a different experience than Black people who may be from other areas. So for those who are Black Americans and have that lineage in America where police officers were able to pull you over and arrest you at will, where you could get kicked out of a diner where there were signs that prohibit you from walking on this side of the street. Now imagine that's what's been happening to you for about 300 or so years. And then the 60s happen. And you're like, oh, I can speak up and I'm willing to speak up at risk of my life. And the first time you're starting to speak up, you're seeing the consequences that are happening, right? They were there, they were broadcast, they were put on postcards about speaking up. But that's really the, the beginning of Black males pushing back on authority. So when people say, you know, do Black males have an issue with authority? I say, no, I say these are people who really, an entire community, whose ability to question and push back on authority was suppressed and resulted in death. And so when you finally can do it, then yes, maybe maybe it's like, wow, what's I'm going to say no because I get to say no. I'm going to say yes because I get to say yes. So then how do we work around people who really feel disempowered? Because it isn't about authority. It's about feeling disempowered by those in authority, right? That's where I do the work with my clients is I, I can't go back any race generational trauma. I acknowledge it. I see the connection here. You've told me about what, how your parents express that. And now I'm saying, okay, let's, 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 let's pull that into therapeutic terms. Um, and it's not even necessarily pushing back against authority. It's, um, excuse me, I want my basic human rights. You know, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I but that scene is pushing back. But that's seen as pushing back because you're finally now asking questions. And that's even, you know, again, we work with adults who are parents. And I'm sure you've told one of your clients that child is still a human. And like one day that child's going to make decisions. So as much as you may want to stop that or protect them, at some point they're going to go out and do something that you're not going to like. Is that making them a bad person or is that making them going through just a learning process of expression? And so that's where I kind of see a lot of black males um, just just now finally learning to speak up and and that's being pushed back pretty bad. But there, I think it's going to continue because of people like you and other people who are interested in providing access to those voices.
that prompted a side thought how, you know, going back to what I was saying about having, you know, black clients and trying to work through that discrepancy between the generational trauma and oppression and systematic racism, but like, I'm a safe person, <laughs> you know, and I know that's not something that's going to be easily accepted overnight, but I'm, I'm aware that even though I'm not a police officer, I'm not an administrator, I'm not an, you know, I'm not a parent, I'm seen in the mental health world, especially for black individuals, we're seen as a symbol of authority that might oppress, right? So what things can I do as a clinician or what can other clinicians or people in the helping professions or people in positions of authority in general, what are things that we can do to encourage that safety and help kind of push through those things? I think the first thing is to consider your language. Before you meet a person, you have used language about someone like them from that population or that po that that demographic adjacent. And mm -hmm. you've said some things. Um, you may have looked at the news and it's like, oh, yeah, black males, it's kind of scary in Cleveland. This, this thought that something could happen to me. And so you're using that language. That language then informs how you write reports. So if I already think that Black males are more aggressive, more violent, and riskier individuals, then before you walk into my office, this is there. When I see you and you raise your voice in a normal story about something that would be distressful, I look at that and say, hostile. It depends on how I report to the court, how I talk about these clients. If we're really going to make changes, then it can't just be, I respect these clients. I'm, I'm trying to be culturally humble. I mean, those are great things, right? But to make them tangible means getting real about what you think. I always share the story. Um, I um, have consistently, and I do now, work with a lot of members of the LGBTQ plus community. And it's, it's. I think there we really have to work on some, some social justice issues um, and just supporting an entire population dealing with discrimination within that population. So there's a lot of work that has to be done there. So I have worked with transgender clients, lots of transgender clients, and I specifically do so because I know it's a deficit in my understanding. And I always share this story. Yeah, I, I am advocating for the client. Um, I try to ask the right questions, but because I know I'm very ignorant to everything that I probably need to know to effectively serve that person, then I tell the client, I really need you to walk me through what to do for you. I'm going to make some suggestions and they could be terrible for what you actually need. So I need you to tell me that that is happening. That has to happen in sessions as well. Ask a person what they need. What do you need to feel safe? It could be you have a portrait behind you that is triggering them because it could it, it could be symbolic of something else. And so I think all those things um, are important. Or another thing, and this is a minor thing that I know people are like, oh, it doesn't mean anything, but it means a lot. When I go into a place uh, that a medical office or, or even to see a therapist, I'm looking for a couple of things. Do I see paintings and portraits that resemble or reflect my culture? Mm -hmm. Is the music reflective of my culture? I think people don't think about that when they're setting up their space for clients to come into. Is this that does this room look like all people are welcome or am I just reflecting 
one culture. And so I'll stop there. But I think that that's another small thing that um, can be done. No, that's so valuable. I was listening to um, uh, Dara Hoffman Fox, who is big in the LGBTQ plus community. And she was doing um, a podcast episode, which was a CE through Clearly Clinical. And she was talking about examples of how you can show that you're affirming and how you show that you're accepting. And she's like, it could be something as simple as you have an LGBTQ mug that you use in your With telehealth, right? Because it's so hard with telehealth now. Me, I... I'm a t-shirt game, right? Like I've just, if we're doing it all from home, it's comfy on the bottom and I got a t-shirt on top. Every once in a while, I might be a Kelsey and put a cardigan on. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'll wear my, we are all human rainbow shirt. I will, you know, I, I'll try to wear and, and portray things like that. So I think that was a really good point. Um, or like jewelry, like wearing rainbow bracelets or, you know, just any, I look like your background, you know, making sure that you have things that represent the work you do. And I think that's so important. So thank you for that reminder, because now I need to think of other ways to affirm my space. <laughs> because when you're in an office, you know, I don't, I haven't seen people in person, really. I only have a couple people, but when I'm in my office, I have like my pride stuff and my equality things and my, you know, support family planning and all of these things. But when you're on telehealth, you have this one little screen. So it's like, what opportunity do I have to say, <laughs> you know, I'm here with you. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And and I think it doesn't have to be a lot of things. I love the idea of wearing the t-shirt. Um, I, I think it, people just want to feel that they're welcome. And, and I think that that's the first step. I have no issue with, I, I don't think it really matters what race or gender the therapist is if you're trying to help. But what I do think makes that experience richer is really thinking about, you know, what about this person's culture can be used as a strength to build upon? Because if we can connect somewhere, where, and it could be anything, it could be something really, really strange to us. Um, but that is the avenue. I connect a lot. with my young guys on rap music and all their rap is terrible. It's just ridiculous. Um, (laughs) Yes. Modern rap is just, I will agree. I I don't listen because this is important to them. And they're like, Oh, you know, this, this right here, this song is speaking to me. And I listen to it and I'm like, Oh my goodness. But (laughs) it helps me Mm -hmm. to, I can pick up on things. I can Mm -hmm. pick up on sadness. I can pick up on things that you're unwilling to say. You say that you could have said this way. That's a great way to connect. Ways of giving the voices. And I feel like for us and our, like in my educational experience, I, I mean, sure, environment for me, like I keep saying, like it makes me step outside of my own world. And I'm like, I feel like we were also told that if we're supposed to come across as an expert, and if you ask your clients to educate you, then you're putting that, you're expecting them to be an I was like, but they are an expert in their own life. And if I'm not, I would want somebody to ask me. Yeah. And My I, initial thought was that when Latoya said, when you said it so eloquently, I need you to walk me through this. And it was so genuine. And I know that you do that with people and it works. My limiting belief because of probably education, and actually I'm putting it um, together on ethical self-disclosure because that's another thing we don't talk about at all, um, is oh, but they're going to think I don't know what the heck I'm doing if I'm asking them to walk me through it. They're going to be like, lady, I came to you to get the information. But that doesn't mean I'm incompetent. It means I'm valuing your experiences and your ability to know your own life experience. And I want to put that that into what I know. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And it's just what a way to be affirmed. You know, I, I think we spend a lot of time making assumptions that and, and we're good at it because we're trained to be readers of, of human behavior and mm-hmm. to listen to really understand. And so I think for the most part, we have those those skills just like, boom, that they're there. But I think it's for me when a doctor has said, explain to me or a therapist has said, you know, I heard you say X, Y and Z, but I think I'm missing something. So tell me about that again and, and tell mm-hmm. me why that was so profound. That's important. That and that helped me understand. Yeah. Yeah. That's just about you're a whole person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so for me to really make connections using my assumptions and reading, I do need some of those gaps filled in, which are really important. I'm a, a black woman and yes, it I could potentially connect better to black males. I don't know that that's true. Right. Right. Because I could be a very tone deaf black woman who's like, because I'm black, I think I know. And and that doesn't help a client either. So regardless of what client and their demographic identity walks through the door, I treat it like, oh, wow, I'm curious. I want to know about you so that I can actually be effective because that's Mm -hmm. what this is about. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know another topic you wanted to touch on today, and I know we have had a little bit sprinkled throughout about cultural expressions of trauma. What did you want to share there? Yes. So I've been doing a lot of research on um, just ethno-psychopharmacology, which is not new, but a lot of people don't know about it, but it's really looking at how medications are metabolized based on culture. So we know that um, most medications were developed in a vacuum and then dosaging for, and most of the people who were in that study happened to be white. Um, but we've learned that not all, but the majority of white individuals metabolize medications faster. So they tend to get lower dosages, whereas Blacks, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders metabolize very slowly. So you've seen this where someone gets a PRN, they're like, oh, it's not working. And then they give them another one, they give them another one, and then the person is about to pass out. And we're like, oh, that's their dosage. They need... 45 milligrams of this as opposed to 15, when in reality, they metabolize so much sm- uh, slower that the medication takes longer to get in their blood. Now, you know, you're like, well, what does that have to do with trauma? Because no. trauma in the body. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. We are all mind body. So, I mean, <laughs> it's it, it trickles through every episode is how we're so disconnected from the body and we're stuck in our minds yeah. and medically, how we've gotten into so many specialties medically, right. but we forget that everything's connected. Oh, I'm so intrigued. I had no idea about that. Right. Again, here's my ignorance. I had no idea about metabolizing and I work part of one of my roles is working. I'm, I'm transitioning out to focus on my nonprofit more, but one of my roles has been being a behavioral health consultant in primary care offices to access people that would never go into a mental health provider. And I'm thinking, you know, they have their dosage recommendations And so if it's not working on a person of color, they're just going to say that medication didn't work for them. What are, what are the different, oh, I have so many questions. I'm sorry. Continue. No, so this is really, again, this has been around since the nineties, but not a lot of doctors. You gotta, you have to be interested. You have to want to know um, Mm -hmm. what's happening. 
So what we know about that, there's a simple test that can tell you if a person's a slow metabolizer or a fast metabolizer, where you can actually provide appropriate dosaging. But how often do we send individuals who are low income or, or even if you have good insurance to go get a test to see why this isn't working? So mm -hmm. if you're being um, inappropriately uh, prescribed medication and you have trauma, which is living in the body, and we understand through epigenetics that trauma patterns repeat and then develop and get become more complicated. And then when new trauma comes, then it re-triggers that trauma. And now it isn't that you can address one thing. You literally have to peel back layers. So what do we know about studying Black males? <clears throat> Typically, they're not going to say they're depressed. They're going to use the term pressure. What do we do with pressure? We don't do anything with that because nowhere in the DSM-5 is there a clear understanding or link between pressure and depression in Black males. So that study was conducted um, 18 to 25-year-old Black males specifically. And so that changes things because if that person comes in and they're saying, I feel pressure, and not all are going to say pressure, but if they come in, then you can say, hmm. I understand that that is linked to trauma and depression. Um, other expressions, just being more apathetic. Mm -hmm. So there's um, a great book by Dr. Joy DeGuyer. It's called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And mm -hmm. what she talks about in there um, specifically is how if, you, if your trauma resulted in generational silence, and generational suppression, because that's what you had to do to survive is just shut up and do what you have to do. Then your apathetic response is going to be higher because you've learned to conceal yourself in order to just survive. So when we're working with black males and they're like, I don't know, I don't care. And we're like non-compliant. Oh, check your language. <laughs> okay. Apathy mm -hmm. is defense mechanism. So it isn't that they're not compliant. They're relying on their defense mechanism. So then we have to do more work to pull that back. Uh, aggression is another area where we see really in men across the board. Um, and this was, there's an excellent study that was conducted by Harvard on PTSD for veterans that showed high levels of apathy and high levels of violence related to trauma. And so if we know that that's something that we clearly can link, then why are we not looking at that for incarcerated males? There are 29 prisons in Ohio, uh, adult prisons, 27 are male. And, the, and unfortunately, Black males who, who only represent about 7.5% of the population in Ohio represent 43% of the prison population. And we know from the Vera Institute of Justice, one in four have diagnosable mental health conditions. Now, how many of us want to bet that the violence that maybe they expressed as teens or young adults is connected to maybe some community trauma, family trauma, individual trauma compounded by generational trauma. Yeah, going back to what we were saying, those person's basic needs and understanding what was going on in the situation was ignored and it was behavioral. It's they don't want to be doing this, right? You just brought back a point. I did a, um, what was the training? Anti-racist mental health practice it was like an all-day training and it was amazing and you've just brought that back to me with the post I need to read that book so I'm we're gonna link that and if you have links to the studies we can absolutely link them too if you want to no stress like if you want to send them to me later oh 
If not, no worries. Um, but I'll definitely link the book because I think that's an important one for people and I need to remind myself to read. But they were talking about how when you say apathy and that's such a, a great way of describing it, but almost like, I think they were mentioning it as almost like a related to not necessarily passive suicidal ideation, but just not caring whether I live or die. Mm -hmm. So you hit it right on the head. Um, Dr. Jeff Gardier, who um, is a black male, but is also a uh, psychologist. Um, did, he has a fantastic documentary called Faces of Darkness, where he talks about suicide and depression in black males. And one of the phrases he uses is slow suicide. And so he talks about where you are purposely putting yourself in a situation where you're not going to take your own life, but the chances of something happening to you are so great that that's, but that's the outcome that you want. And so I think that's a, it's great to talk about that because in men in general, um, I think we're so used to this because history told us if they're going to commit suicide, typically men would use guns or hang themselves. But then we lost track of the idea of slow suicide because drugs and alcohol abuse became the separate thing that you will power your way out of when really it's very much connected to do I want to live or die? What is the value of my life and what do I want? I have so many, so many things and, and, <laughs> and I don't. I don't know where to go with that, but it's like, but they, we have to know, it's our responsibility to know when they are presenting this way, what's underneath of that, or, you know, or like you said, pulling it back, we don't assume that we know, but it's, you're, we have to learn these things and it's our responsibility to learn these things. So it's in front of us. We know that it needs to be pulled back. Yes. Because there is something else there. We don't just make an assumption and then you know, go on that. Absolutely. And it's and generation. Mm -hmm. And I was just going to say transparently, I'm overwhelmed. And this, and that's just like how privileged of me to say, right. um, I'm overwhelmed. How do I even begin to work through? I don't care whether I live or die because what's the point? And no one's ever given me a value in life. And, you know, where does the work even start at that point when they have Oh, vacant self-esteem was the other thing from that training mm. that I learned, right? Yeah. I think, you know, people have asked me because I've I've had my nonprofit and have done this work um, now for almost six years. And people said, you know, because it's it's you you now starting a nonprofit. Lord, what are we thinking? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just we have these beautiful goals and visions and <laughs> dreams of saving the world, but then there's things involved. <laughs> you know, when I started, I started my nonprofit because I worked in um, juvenile corrections and I, I said, these young men are discharging from here and there's nothing out there for them. They're still considered a juvenile, so they can't access certain resources and they're too old. So parents or family don't want to deal with them, but they're so young developmentally, what are we going to do? So I started Project Lift Services to specifically support males because sexism swings both ways. You know, it makes victims of us all. For women, it is, can be crippling to our ability to just be independent. And for men, it assumes independence and the ability to just survive. And so 
if that's the expectation and you don't know what to do, where do you go? People have consistently told me, you know, if you worked with women, you would be so much further ahead because working with black males, that's not really a sympathetic charitable cause. Um, oh yeah. Because I, yeah. And I said, that's exactly why I do it. And you said, okay, bye. You're not my person. (laughs) But it's that, that mindset that they don't need it when, I mean, 14 to 24, number one cause of death, homicide. Number three cause of death, suicide. Something is going on there. (laughs) And if we don't do something about it, we're going to, I mean, literally repeating what we know and losing entire generations to death unnecessarily incarceration or mental instability so that is that's what we do is just talk about it consistently raise it up um and and when we wherever we are being able to tell people you know if we're not thinking specifically about this population what are we doing like you can't talk about homelessness and not specifically say how do we target black males represents particularly in my area of Cleveland, Ohio, like 80% of the homeless population. So if you're not talking about racial disparities and housing and income and all these different things, then you can't help. Um, the same thing for incarceration. We can't have criminal justice reform without talking about racial disparities. Mm-hmm. It just, they go hand in hand. And, and that's what I would love for people to start doing. If you work in housing, Think about the policies that reinforce oppression. You know, think about how systems really break up families because, oh, this person can't be on the voucher. Think about all of that before we are writing reports of noncompliance or or lack of motivation and all these things that will be used against them. There were two things that hit me when you mentioned sexism on both sides and men are just expected to have it together, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, right? Mm -hmm. The word you used prior was pressure. And I felt it in my chest. Oh my gosh, what an enormous amount of pressure. And going back to, um, we interviewed my husband a few sessions ago, and we're actually going to start a men's mental health series um, about how, and he was talking about that pressure of like, I always have to, you know, he's a white male, but even just in males in general, right? Like the pressure to provide, the pressure to always be achieving the pressure. And then you you think about the racial impacts of that as well. Oh, that's heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's my plug. If you have any um, black males or any diverse males that would want to be a part of that series with him, please send them our way. And the other thing I was thinking um, was how privileged of us to say, eh, you know what? They're a lost cause. We're just going to write them off. Let's serve the people that we can actually make a difference with. Mm-hmm. That gets us nowhere and that repeats history. Yeah. I mean, I tell people who are like, we work with women and because look, hey, yes, as a woman, please, we need more funding for small businesses. We need more opportunities to step into positions of power at 100% all day, every day. Um, But we have to think about things less singular. You know, we don't, it's not, we work with educating uh, women or girls because like that that's a um melinda gates uh passion is let's educate women across the world because that will improve poverty maybe maybe 
because those women are going to continue to marry and have babies with men who, if we don't help them, will have criminal histories and addiction and mental health instability. And, you know, so the cycle will be repeated if we don't take this in a, a two-pronged approach. Yes, we have to educate more women because we want to reduce domestic violence and sexual assault and independence. And we want to make sure that women are capable, but we also want to make sure that we're not ignoring men by one, holding them accountable to reducing domestic violence and sexual assault, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have to then give them the tools to be able to do that. It, it goes- One doesn't negate the other. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we uh, at social work, if social work teaches us anything, <laughs> the person and environment, it's mind, body, soul, biopsychosocial, spiritual, it's the whole picture, right? You can't just say, oh, it's, and I know your focus is black males, but I'm almost positive without you telling me that you would also work with their partner, their female partner, if it was part of the problem, or you're also working with other business women to empower them in other ways, right? So, yeah. So even though, you know, I do have a couple of women on my case, like, no, you're going to work with me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think you raise a really good point. When I'm working with, let's say I I have a client right now, married, Black father, history of incarceration, um, but really doing the very best he can, works, engaged with the kids, all these things. When I am supporting him, if we're doing our jobs effectively as clinicians, whatever we're giving to that person to become uh, healthier, to set more appropriate boundaries, to be emotionally expressive, to be well, we will undoubtedly impact and improve the lives of that person's child, that person's spouse and every single person in their network. Because if I'm healthy, I'm less likely to pull you into unhealthy things or to engage in unhealthy practices. And so I think that's the myth sometimes people get. It's like, wow, we need to treat the whole family. Well, yes, that would be best case scenario. Everybody can take off work and school and come, let's get some treatment. But uh, you know, not necessarily the case. So if we have the father or the mother or the child, how can we support that child in going back home and little by little implementing the therapeutic practices that we've been working on so that it's not an assault on the family, but that it can intertwine and weave into the tradition of the family. At least that's the goal. Like a trickle down effect. It's like, okay, I'm focusing on what do I have in front of me right now? And I, and what can I give them? Because I know that it's going to inadvertently trickle right down. Into right. The I've mentioned it before. That's one of my most beautiful parts of therapy that I just, yes. just gives <laughs> me the chills and it makes me so happy. You know, you get people when they're just at their darkest moments or their most overwhelmed moments or whatever it is. And they get, and you see the entire system around them. That's just encouraging those unhelpful things. Um, And then they get to a point in therapy where they've started to heal so much and use effective communication and set healthy boundaries and learn so much about things that they look around them (laughs) and they're like, Ooh, that's not healthy. Yeah. Ooh, that's black and white thinking. (laughs) Ooh, that's right. And then it just starts to trickle in 
And they'll say, my spouse has started to kind of treat me a little different since I've been setting that effective communication. And it always goes back to the starfish story for me, because I think when you do this work, it can get super overwhelming and you just, you know, want to want to save them all. And I, I was talking about, you know, when the insurrection was happening and how it was like, you know, people are either just insanely caught up in it and stressed out and overwhelmed and have to watch every moment of it. And not that I'm being ignorant, but I had clients that day. So I knew that I needed to compartmentalize and say, that's crazy. <laughs> that's overwhelming. <laughs> that's not okay. Right. All the things. And I need to be present for this person and know that when I serve this person and we heal them, then that's going to heal the next person in their lives. And then when they have kids, that's going to heal and that's going to heal. Right. And so it just kind of trickles in and that's my, I saved that one. <laughs> I saved that one. And it is the small wins too, you know, therapy, I have clients are like, oh, I used to be in therapy and I stopped. I said, well, you know, the beautiful thing about therapy is, is that there's no set way to do it. It might be six months here and you take a couple months off and you come back. You might have years in between because you can benefit from it throughout the rest of your life. Like everybody needs at some point to kind of let me give this to somebody and see where am I at? Um, just just check up in wellness. And so I think um, trying to encourage that and, and talk about that is also important. You know, what would be reasons that you would disengage, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Therapy can be overwhelming. So we might hit a point where, where you are not ready to go forward. Instead of just losing track, um, tell me. And we will take a break and then we'll we'll set a time when we come back. We have yep. to just be a little bit more innovative in our ideas of how therapy should occur too. So and transparent and open, like you were saying before, you know, like just tell me. You know, I try to tell clients all the time, you know, we meet for the first couple times and you decide I'm not your person. That's mm -hmm. okay. I no guilt, no shame, no judgment. But I would love to be the person that could help you find the right person. So instead mm -hmm. of you just not showing up, like, let me know. I'm here for you, whatever it means. And even if that's not me, or if I say something that you feel like is wrong, please call me out. Or, you know, that transparency we're talking about, being willing to have an open conversation because we're human. You know, Absolutely. we are professionals, but we're human beings too. So. Absolutely. Thanks meeting the client, like what is ingrained in us in our educational system, meeting meeting our clients where they're at, but it takes it to a whole other level. Mm -hmm. Like when we talk about like a systems of oppression and it's like, no, but you really, you really need to meet them where they're at. Like, right. <laughs> I agree. With okay. that. I think meeting them with their, where, where they're at too, could be a class. I, I often am asked, you know, how do you engage with clients? And, and every client is going to be different, but I do think we need to talk about um, what's your strategy? I, I have noticed for me, I have to just be me. And Amanda, I know this is true for you. Like, we are just who we are and we bring mm -hmm. ourselves the work that we do and it will work for some and it may not work for others and I think having that self-confidence Kelsey too what you were saying like I may not be then that means if to me my clients are like hmm so even if this doesn't work out you're going to help yes if I'm not the one I'm going to help you find the one because this isn't about me this is about right. you becoming well to whatever level that means for you so I think that's a really good point that the both of you are making authenticity and making us about making it about us yeah. mm -hmm. 
I could, okay, so seriously, if you want to start a series on all the things and get yeah. the information out there, we're down for it. Like I said, if you have any black male or any males in general, sorry, um, obviously we're always looking for more diverse people and you work with LGBTQ. So if you know any, you know, any professionals or any completed clients or anyone that would want to be a part of that to share their story, we would love to have them. Um, you can always come back. We would love to have you back. Are there any last minute things that we didn't touch on? Um, I know you do a lot of research. I'm pretty sure you've written books. Any plugs you want to put out there to share or any mantras you have for people before we close out? <laughs> thank you. Yes. Well, first, I'd like to thank both of you for giving me the opportunity to talk about something I could literally talk to you all day about um, because it's important to me. So I want to thank both of you and I hope that your podcast continues to grow because this is necessary work and I love to see social workers doing it. Um, (laughs) So that's my first. Uh, The second thing is, yes, um, I would say I've written a book. uh, It's called The Case of the Brownie that really talks about how the first book is called Examining aggression, trauma, and apathy in Black males. And then I wrote a corresponding workbook to go with that so that they could um, kind of work through trauma and anger and shame and all those three things. Both of those books are located or are sold on amazon.com. So the first one is the case of the brownie and the workbook is not about the damn brownie. And I guarantee you when you read the book, you'll find out what the brownie is, but it's not what you think. <laughs> oh, I, I remember it. when I saw you at the um, Televehavioral Health Conference and you were, I think you were still finishing it up or you I had think, just started. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I need to know when you're like, you'll have to get the book. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I still have to get the book. So thanks for the reminder. Yeah. And then, um, if you're looking for training, uh, Project Love Services, we're a CEU provider. So I do a lot of work on racial trauma, um, culture and diagnosing intersectionality so you can go to our website at projectlistservices.org and again just thank you for having me absolutely and we'll make sure we link i'm going to link all of those things the books you shared the documentary your website projectliftservices.org right yes perfect thank you so much for being here to all of our um listeners viewers audience I hope you loved this episode. As always, don't forget to comment and give us your feedback on what you want out of future episodes, what you loved, what you didn't love. We want to give you what you need, obviously, rather than just assuming. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on the latest episodes. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Bye.